0: Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Isham Nation, welcome to the Process This podcast. This is episode number 40. Today on the show, we have Seth Hindi talking to us about leak testing. Now, he has some great information to share, so stay tuned for that. But before we talk to Seth, I want to talk to you about change. Now, some people say they don't like change, and I'm going to say, well, if you work in still processing, I can only assume that you're always unhappy. Because sterile processing is all about change, all about improving practices. Change is at the very heart of what sterile processing is and what we do. So I'm going to tell you a quick story here. I remember when the first iPhone came out. Now, at this time I had my Flip razor phone, thought I was pretty cool. And I remember thinking, what's the big deal? You know, what's the big deal with the iPhone? You know, I had a phone, you know, I called people, it was great. You know, why did I need an iPhone? Why are people buying an iPhone uh, just to call people? Well, it wasn't until I tried texting people on my cool razor keypad. Now, if you remember, when you texted people on a phone with a keypad, you know, the words were attached to the letters, right? So there's just zero through nine. Um, and if you tried to spell a word, let's say a word with the letter S in it, you had to tap the number seven key five times before you got to the letter S. And it went, it went something a little like this. Seven, then then P, then you Q, R, and then finally the S. Now, you finally got to the S unless unless you missed it, and then you had to go back around again, right? Back to the 7, the P, the Q, the R, and the S. And that was just for one one letter out of one word, right? Well, then with this smartphone, you know, the smartphone came out of the iPhone. Not only could you text easily, but you also had the internet. You had these crazy apps with games and stuff. My Razer phone wasn't quite so cool after that. After the internet, after the apps and such, you know, changing to a smartphone really wasn't so difficult anymore. In fact, I couldn't even believe that I held out for so long. I didn't know what I was missing. Coming up in June, you have the chance to make a change. A change in your profession. The Isham Board of Directors is proposing a name change from, hang on just a second, let me take a breath the International Association of Healthcare Central Service Materials Management to Healthcare Sterile Processing Association. Okay, for me, this is an easy decision. You know, this change uh, essentially is moving the organization forward. Well, you have a chance to be a part of history. You have the ability to cast a vote for the change in June right? And this is going to be towards the end of the month, right? So change is good. You don't got to be scarred. Don't be scarred, people. It's going to be all right. So what I'd like you to do is check out the isham.org webpage for more information about this potential exciting name change. Today, we're talking to Seth. Seth is a clinical education coordinator for Healthmark Industries, where he provides expertise on medical device processing, policy writing, and sterile processing education. Now, Seth is a member of multiple AMI working groups, which include ST79, ST90, and my favorite, ST91. Now, Seth is certified both through ISHM and through CBSPD. And prior to joining Healthmark, Seth worked for 20 years in Central Service Department, where he held many roles, uh, but the last eight years really focused on education. Among other things, Seth was responsible for providing initial training, continuing education, competency verification for staff. He was in charge of ensuring that his folks were prepared to become certified, remain certified, and could perform processing duties per the standards, guidelines, facility practice. Seth, welcome to the podcast. We're glad to have you.
1: Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So when we're talking about leak testing, and some folks in our audience, they may not really understand leak testing because it's probably not part of their practice in sterile processing. So can you explain what is leak testing and why is leak testing so important?
1: Of course. So leak testing is a process that confirms there shouldn't be fluid invasion into a sealed area of a scope. And there are sealed areas for, for several reasons. And so we'll, we'll get into that a little later. But really the importance of it is because leak testing uh, and faulty leak testers are an infection risk. That's the, the real basis for this. And the scopes have sensitive electronic parts and then other areas that are just not accessible for cleaning. These parts are sealed. They're hermetically sealed on purpose to protect those electronics and to prevent contamination. Uh, And the real problem is it's not only fluid, say cleaning fluid that can get in there, but bio And that's really why it presents an infection risk.
0: So can you give us an overview of really some of the different types of leak tests that are available?
1: Uh, There's many different models of testers, but there are basically two versions, which is manual and mechanical. And then there's two methods, and it's wet and dry, and so I can break those down. A manual leak test consists of attaching a a, a little bulb. Most of us have seen it's a bulb with a pressure gauge and a a piece of tubing uh, that has a, a connector for your scope. You manually pump the bulb to whatever pressure is described in the IFU, and then we wait to see if that pressure falls. If the pressure is maintained on the gauge, then the scope is sealed. And so that's a pretty easy way of doing it. And there are many scopes out there that have manual leak testing. Mechanical leak testing consists of attaching the scope to a pump instead of a a manual bulb and then having the scope automatically inflated by the tester itself. Some of these still do come with gauges, so there's still an observation of pressure, but many new ones actually will just give a pass-fail. So the machine itself, there isn't a a pressure gauge to directly uh, look at, but the unit that's that's insufflating the scope will give you a pass-fail, and so you're still observing that way. Interestingly enough, some models of aers have built in leak tester sensors and they deliver positive pressure during the automated cycle which is, which is actually a great thing now when we talk wet versus dry the real big difference here is you're still insufflating the scope you're still filling it up with air but there's no pressure gauge involved you're actually placing the scope in a bath and then we're observing for bubbles. And in that way, we're checking for leaks, right? If the, if the scope is filled with air and these sealed areas are filled with air and you don't see any bubbles escaping from the scope, then those areas are sealed. And And that is the main difference between a wet and a dry leak test I do have to say that I am aware of some IFUs that start you off with a dry leak test and then have you perform a wet leak test after. So that's something to be uh, to be aware of. You may be doing both.
0: So, Seth, I know you've worked in sterile processing in your career, and I, I know that you've also, you know, like currently work in education for an industry partner. So from your experience, what are some reasons facilities have for not really performing a leak test and is not performing that leak test really an option?
1: Sadly, this happens all too often in our industry. And you're right. I I know that because I was there. Seth, I just don't have enough time. I'm sorry, I don't have enough time to do this. And so that's what we hear most often. There just isn't enough time. They need this scope back. I do have to say, in truth, it does take several minutes to properly perform a leak test, especially a wet leak test. The reason being is that it's a multi-step process, right? The scope has to be fully insufflated, which takes a minute. Then it has to be placed in water and then all the excess bubbles. Because as I mentioned, if you're doing the wet leak test, looking for bubbles to be expelled from the scope is a sign of a leak. So, But of course, as we place it into the bath, there's air inside the scope already, right? So there are actually steps for flushing with fluid to make sure that all of those air bubbles are out. And then, of course, there's the deflection. Because if, if we're not careful, you know, the bending section especially can actually hide and mask small leaks. So in all of the IFUs, there's actually a, a procedure of running it through its full range of deflections to ensure that none of those have been uh, sort of covered up. And what that also does is it has you manipulating the control dials, which are also sealed, right? They also have seals inside them. So when someone says, I don't have enough time, that's not an illegitimate statement, but we have to be giving that time because uh, you're, you know, the end of your question, is it important and is skipping it an option? It absolutely isn't, right? That's, that becomes the, the problem uh i also do see a little bit of lack of understanding you know for the importance of a leak test many times we're told in in spd by whoever's using the instrument this one's broken this scissor is dull this clamp doesn't doesn't hold tight anymore things like that so Mm -hmm. many people will say well wouldn't they know when using it and they would tell me so really what's the importance and if if you think about it that way then it doesn't seem like a big step to skip right this is not such an issue they they would have told me it was a problem so i'm just going to skip it well it is completely not an option for one it's a compliance issue so if you say well i don't understand the importance or i don't have the time i would say it doesn't matter during a survey it's part of the ifu so a savvy surveyor has you dead to rights by coming in and saying, I didn't see you perform the leak test. I know it's part of every endoscope, flexible endoscope IFU, so you're out of compliance right there. The second really issue with that is these are sensitive devices. They can be damaged internally in ways that you can't see. We're we're not Superman. We don't have x-ray vision, and we can't see some of the damage that can be going on. Leak testing verifies that fluid isn't able to get into parts of the scope that it's not meant to and cause damage and contamination. And that really is going to keep your scope working longer and keep your patient safer because the damage is an issue for for the first part, and then infection control and patient safety is the other part.
0: So you kind of mentioned this in an earlier question, but how important is it to have multiple types of leak testers.
1: It's very important. Compatibility is a huge factor with dealing with endoscopes in any way, right? The correct brushes, now they don't have to be, you know, we've been down this road, they don't have to be a brush prescribed by the manufacturer necessarily, but they certainly have to be the same length and the diameter and they should be equivalent. Well, why is that? Well, that's because compatibility is a huge factor. And so especially when we're talking about leak testing, you actually have a venting connection that is unique to every endoscope that I'm aware of. Olympus has their own. Carl Storrs has their own. Pentax has their own. So really, if you were going to say, hey, I'm going to perform this leak test and you didn't have the specific leak tester or one design for that uh, specific scope, you're going to fail to properly inflate the scope. And then your test is inaccurate, right? You may not fully insufflate it. Looking for bubbles or looking for air pressure on the gauge is is an issue, and your test is is not good. Worse still, you can actually create a path for fluid invasion if you have a venting cap that fits improperly.
0: So, in the March-April 2020 issue of the process publication. You mentioned something that if processing professionals aren't careful, then the actual act or the actual process of leak testing can cause a fluid invasion. Can you talk a little bit about that statement?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so back to the venting connection. That's a self-sealing valve. It is meant that when a cap is applied, like an ETO cap or a sterilization cap, that that opens the scope to the sterilant. So by putting that cap on, you're opening the valve. By placing that cap on, you're opening it during use and also during your leak test for air to be placed inside the scope. So if we are not using the right leak tester, right, or having some kind of problem with attaching it, then we're actually opening that valve but not sealing it. Many of these venting connectors actually have a little rubber gasket on the inside. So by placing that on and locking it in, you're creating an airtight seal. If either of those things don't happen and that airtight seal isn't attained, then you've created a path for fluid to enter the scope instead of keeping it out. There's an an issue with it right there. The other big thing that we see is when a leak test is performed, the scope has to be fully inflated before entering the bath should remain inflated through the whole process and upon removal. We need to make sure that you're looking at the distal tip and you see that it's fully inflated. When it's placed in the bath, performing the test is fully inflated and that it's lifted up and completely out of the bath while fully inflated because it deflates, of course, when you unhook the, the leak tester, right? When the air pressure is no longer applied, unhooking it underneath the water can have something, again, enter through that valve. Plus, when the air exits, it can actually draw water in. So we, we do see that often. Someone just reaches into the bath and pops off the leak tester. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is that is a surefire way to cause some fluid invasion if you're not careful. And the manufacturer says inflate, place in the bath, remove from the bath, and fully deflate. And so again, it's an IFU compliance thing.
0: Can you also talk about some other common errors that you found uh, that can lead to a poor leak test?
1: We see a lot of people not verifying that the leak tester is working properly. So the leak tester itself. Now I know some of these seem uh, very simple, but like uh, any equipment, leak testers can still fail and should be checked. There's actually steps in the IFU that will say, hey, you should do this or you should do that to verify this leak tester is working. And again, if you're not seeing the importance, if you don't feel like you have enough time, these seem like very simple steps to skip. And they're not and they shouldn't be. Uh, We also see that uh, improper use of that water bath, doing a wet leak test. People are, again, trying to sort of push through, and they'll actually fill the bath, not remove all of the bubbles from a scope. So then we have someone thinking to themselves, oh, no, no, I'm sure that's just a couple of bubbles from inside. That's not a leak. Well, okay, here, here we are. The IFU says to remove all of those bubbles so that we can't make this mistake. The other thing is, everyone says, hey, I'm going to be cleaning it in here anyway, so in goes my detergent. Well, even your best low foaming detergent will have some bubbles, especially when it's first applied, right? Mm-hmm. When it's first put into the bath, you know, when the water is still running, you get some bubbles. And again, these soap bubbles could be like, no, 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 I am sure that those are just some bubbles as from the detergent. It's not a leaking scope and it is a leaking scope, right? And we have a problem. So properly using that water bath for your wet leak test is a big deal. Uh, not using a large enough sink, now, we see this. Everyone talks about transporting their scope and not overcoiling it mm-hmm. because what it does, depending on the size of your scope, there is a circumference that your, the scope manufacturer is going to tell you, please don't make this smaller than the size of a basketball uh, or a soccer ball. That's usually your larger scopes. That's usually kind of what they say. And that's because you can do internal damage to the scope well in truth during a leak test if you were to you know use a bath that's even bigger than that but still causes quite a bit of bend in your scope you can actually have leaks being masked you can actually press that leak together if it happens in the right spot and the bending section or the insertion tube kind of pushes together close because it's, it's coiled a little too tight and it masks uh, small holes and then really the last thing is moving a bit too quickly okay so whether you're observing that pressure gauge or if you're looking in a bath for bubbles you got to have time for an accurate observation and then also because this is from the IFU to move the scope through its full range of motion you know when you're when you're looking at it most of these scopes move left and right but then the bigger scopes left right up and down i know of, of endoscopes that talk about holding that deflection for about um, 15 to 20 seconds each way. So if you've got a scope that deflects four ways and it's 15 seconds, there's a minute just deflecting the scope while observing. So really, if you want to throw it in a bath and say, yeah, everything looks good, I'm okay, that's going to be a problem as well. So Mm. slow down, make time for your observation.
0: So let's say that I'm doing the leak test, and all of a sudden I found a leak. What should be done when a leak is found, and really, who should we notify?
1: Sure. So it depends on your facility policy for who to notify um, and potentially for what to be done, although I think most policies are going to address continuing to clean the scope. And, And I'll break that down a little bit. Endoscope manufacturers provide guidance for processing leaking scopes. You you can usually find it. Sometimes it's not directly in the processing instructions. It's more towards the back. Uh, same thing with uh, processing scopes for delayed reprocessing or excessive bleeding. Some people say, I've never seen that section. I don't wait a minute. I don't understand. Well, it's because it's not right up front in the cleaning. Uh, the thought is that things are going right. The way that they write these manuals, that things are okay and cleaning can proceed this way. But if you've had an issue you go towards the back of the manual and you can find this this guidance. So a lot of times the manufacturers will provide you something that says, here's how you can try to keep cleaning uh, to at least decontaminate. We're probably not gonna move through disinfection, but we can at least decontaminate the scope. And that's really important because most repair facilities won't accept a contaminated endoscope. So our policy really has to address how do I do that? Did my policy take the guidance from the manufacturer for how to move forward with with processing the scope to at least render it safe for handling and transport? And what is my deal with with my repair facility, Um, would they accept it? I do know that sometimes in certain cases, there can be an extra charge and a bunch of notifications that have to be given so that the the manufacturer understands or the repair facility understands that they're getting a contaminated scope back. Most of the time, they they just won't accept it. They'll expect you to have done something about it. Now as far as who should be notified, again, that kind of comes to your facility. If you've got a a pretty robust inventory and a well-maintained schedule, you may just be notifying the next uh, technician in the line. Hey, I found this scope it was leaking and you should tell Mary uh, who facilitates the repairs that we've got a scope to go out. And you're probably all set, right? It's not affecting your volumes. It's not affecting the next case. And you know, it can stay something that simple. But, you know, if the scope is a one of a kind or if volumes are an issue, then there's going to be more notifications. Not only do you need to tell other people in the department, hey, I've got a leaking scope coming through. Please be aware of this. But you are also may be having to say, please, someone get on the phone, uh, call the OR and let them know, I can't turn the scope over, it's leaking, and so somebody with responsibility for for manipulating the schedule and making decisions about that uh, might be part of it. And then of course, uh, depending on the facility, some people, uh, some places out of an abundance of caution are involving infection prevention, so that they may be able to take steps that they feel necessary. So, it really kind of depends on your volumes for one, how how ne- needed is that scope, and then what You know, what does your facility policy say about follow-up to, to leaking sculpts or damaged instruments? And that's what you should follow.
0: So let's say that I found a leak or some damage to a scope. Uh, is there a specific type of tape or tape color that I need to use?
1: That is a great question. So, yes, the type is, is water-resistant. Uh, you know, they make vinyl. Uh, I've seen people use um, instrument banding tape. Mm. Uh, you wouldn't want to, say, use sterilization tape, right? That's, that's not something that, that can easily keep water out. So you want a piece of, a kind of tape that's, that's slightly water resistant. But I've seen all kinds used. The reason that really doesn't matter is that leak. You know, we're not worried about residues from the glue. That leak is going to have your repair facility stripping off the outer sheath and replacing it. So what we really want to do is limit contamination inside that scope. Some kind of tape that can well cover the hole and be a little water resistant. Now to the the question of what color should be used, uh, the answer to that is not black. (laughs) Now I'm kidding, right? I'm kidding a bit, but really this is a temporary patch and we want it to be very, very visible, yeah. right? The scenario that we're really trying to avoid here is that someone says, I didn't see any tape on that scope. What do you what do you mean it was leaking? Well, I used black electrical tape. Now, electrical tape would probably do quite a job of sealing up a hole, but it would also mask the hole from everyone else that so, should be looking for it and should be seeing it. Uh, colors like yellow, red, orange—those things that stand out pretty starkly against black—those are your are your general winners, right? Everyone's like, this this should be a giant sign that there's an issue. I, I do want to say some people, regardless of tape and regardless of tape color, still mark them as broken with a repair tag, with a broken tag, you know, some some kind of way. Just remember that this temporary patch of tape does not have to be your only reporting mechanism. If you're in a facility that says, hey, we make sure that we mark everything, no matter what instrument it is, with a broken tag or a repair tag, that's also a very good way of making sure no one makes a mistake and, and thinks about using this scope again before it's repaired.
0: Now, do you have any suggestions on how uh, folks should document leak testing? For example, uh, what should be included in that documentation?
1: That's another great question. You, You know, as I stated before, if you've got a mechanical leak tester or an AER that's performing a leak test, some of those do some recording for you. So if they have capabilities of giving you a printout or storing that data that you can later download, Boom, right? That's that's great because there's usually some things attached to that. At least date, time. Uh, many of the AERs, of course, are having ghosts recorded by serial number, so it's catching that. You know, so if you if you have a system like that, I would say utilize uh, Another method could be a facilities tracking system. I know of a couple of tracking systems that that allow for pop-ups, so you can customize this. To make it say, did you perform the leak test? And when you click yes or okay on that pop-up box, it's recording several pieces of those information. Whatever system is utilized, the key information, of course, is going to be about the scope and about the person. So the name of the person performing the test should be part of it. Uh, the scope being tested either by serial no- number or some other unique identifier you know if it's barcoded through uh, spm or something like that there's your unique identifier for the scope uh, the date that the test occurred and the results right we're performing this so of course we would want to say if it's a pass or a fail and then uh, a lot of times it should be actions uh, if you find a fail You know, the Joint Commission might say, okay, this is great, I see your record, I see a fail, and what did you do with it? You know, sometimes simple statements like sent out for repair, that would be enough to cover it. So if you can get those five pieces of information, you're gonna be able to nail down who, what, when, and where, uh, and what actions, and that's that's a pretty good list of, of things to document.
0: When using those mechanical leak testers, is there any kind of special care required for that device that users should be aware of?
1: Yeah, absolutely. All equipment has PM, right? Uh, we, no matter how simple it is and no matter how simple we wish it were, there's PMs for everything. And so these leak testers come with manufacturer recommended PMs. Now I'll give you some generalizations here because of course they're gonna get specific depending on how complex and some of the mechanical ones are more complex and they need a little more. But in general, they're gonna say the unit should be kept clean especially that connector, right? That venting cap connector is one of the only things that's actually touching the scope. And oh, by the way, it's touching it when it's still considered contaminated. Mm. So we really, really want to make sure that that connector is kept clean. We're always looking to make sure that the tubing and the connector are not damaged. This is supposed to perform adequate insufflation and filling the scope with air, having leaks in the insulation tester itself are not great for for getting up to the optimal pressures there are little seals. There's usually little seals, as I mentioned, in that connector. And then uh, there can be little seals where the connector uh, attaches to the tubing. And so inspecting those and making sure they're still present uh, is big. And I have looked into leak testers before and expected to see a little black gasket in the groove inside the vent connector and found it not to be there. And mm-hmm. that's, that would not be good.
0: So going back to that March-April 2020 article, You also mentioned that leak testers, like all the equipment in sterile processing, should be verified that they're working properly. Can you talk about this verification process?
1: Many IFUs require some simple tests to be performed. I'll use the manual leak test uh, as an example for this. In those, it's so simple, you know, it's just a bulb and a gauge and and a piece of tubing, and those three things are working together. So, inflating with the bulb Putting, putting some pressure on, on it and then pinching the tubing is a very simple way to actually see if that is, is working properly, right? That's gonna tell you that all of those pe- pieces are actually still working. For a mechanical tester, uh, as a matter of fact, it's still a simple test. It's considered a simple test, but I find it a little tougher to get a, 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 an accurate result, let's say. Now, that's because many of these say, Okay, all you need to do is verify that air is passing through. And so uh, most of these have a pin that engages when, it is pre- when it's put on the venting cap. So when this pin is depressed, air exits. And the IFU says, reach in with your finger and press and listen for air to, uh, to be released. Here's my real issue with that. That's kind of subjective and not measurable Mm. now with the gauge you know with the other thing we can actually look we can observe a gauge and and watch pressure increase decrease or not unfortunately these tests can be subjective and not measurable really what it means is each person performing the test can interpret and feel differently about the results as i say if we're listening for a the sound of air being released then my hearing might be different than yours john right and so that is the definition of a subjective test you hear one thing i hear something else and so some of those are difficult i think to to do well and to to make sure is happening well because where's the gauge you know we want to look we want to see a pressure and and verify it so while that's unfortunate Fortunately, there are products on the market now that make that observation objective and measurable. Uh, so if you, you know, if you think about that and you think that that's potentially an issue, that's something to look into that now you can actually test your leak tester. This can be done for manual or mechanical leak testers with a gauge, pressures applied, visualization and verification of that pressure being delivered is there and then you know that your tester is working properly.
0: So when it comes to leak testing, can you tell us some of the guidance that you recommend?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Be aware and address why some places aren't doing the things that we talked about earlier, right? When I said lack of time or lack of understanding, Mm -hmm. you really have to be aware of that in your facility and say, "I, I really do have to make sure that everyone understands the importance of this and be aware and address why some facilities do not perform leak testing, uh, whether it's lack of time or whether it's lack of understanding, right? So we talked about this before. If those are the two biggest issues that we see in the field, then the first thing is to recognize those and say, what do I need to do in my facility? First, we need to ensure that everyone with scope processing responsibilities understands how important this step is to catching damage and preventing contamination right? A lack of understanding can't be the reason we don't do this. It gets those endoscopes that we would normally think are functioning that are not, and they're a patient risk. It gets them out of the system, and that's what we need. So everyone has to understand that that's really what you're trying to do here. That's why it's important. The second part is, let's say everyone understands how important this is, and no one feels like they have the time. Right. Again, so that right back to my other thing. Seth, I don't have time to do this. Well, we need to give processing staff time to properly perform these leak testing steps. Uh, it, you know, some of them are just three to five minutes, but three to five minutes over the course of an entire day, every single scope that you do can really start to add up. And if there's too much pressure, All the understanding in the world won't matter because people will say, I just don't have enough time, so I I skipped it.
0: Seth, last question, and I think I already know the answer to this one. But in your opinion, is leak testing a critical step in the reprocessing of endoscopes?
1: Absolutely. Leak testing is critical to a quality endoscope program. If you say, hey, we we do endoscopes and we're good at it, produce quality stuff, which I believe is every every processing professional, whether you're an SPD, whether you're in an endo suite, it really doesn't matter. You know, we have a tough job and I believe that everyone who gets into it and stays has some kind of commitment to quality. And so if you want to say that your endoscope processing is quality, then leak testing has to be part of that. As I stated earlier, it's part of every IFU and should occur every time an endoscope is processed. So right off the bat, that thing that we've been stomping our feet about for 15, almost 20 years now, where's my IFU? Where's my IFU? Please don't bring me something without an IFU. Okay, here it is. And it says that this has to happen every time. So we need that, right? And then beyond compliance with the IFU, We know internal damage can go unnoticed unless you perform integrity inspections. As I said before, we can't see these things with our naked eye. So if we are not performing some kind of integrity inspections, we miss things. So leak testing like internal boroscopic inspection can show you issues with an endoscope that otherwise just would not be seen, and if it's not seen, it's a risk to the patient.
0: Seth, it's been great having you on the show today. Thank you for sharing with us, uh, taking out uh, some time in your busy day and sharing your knowledge. So thank you, Seth.
1: Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. I, I love the podcast and uh, I was I was really uh, happy when you asked me to do it. So, so thank you.
0: Thank you, Seth, again for speaking with us today. Isham Nation, Yep, you guessed it. Episode 40 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. And because you listen to the show, you deserve to receive a CE. So to receive that CE for this episode, for the time you put in listening to me, listening to the show, simply click on the link in the episode notes or that Earn CE Now button, fill out the required information and select the code Dry Testing. Again the code for this specific episode is dry testing. Remember keep an ear out for the next episode always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, hey, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy Ishim Nation and we'll see you next time.